0: Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be exploring virtual reality. My guest is my good friend, Jason Reza-Giorjani, Giorgiani, is the author of Prometheus and Atlas, as well as World State of Emergency, Lovers of Sophia, Novel Folklore, and Iranian Leviathan. Welcome, Jason. Great, great to be with you again, Jeffrey, as always as always. So, virtual reality has become very popular now. I I know you can buy virtual reality goggles, and and there must be millions of people who are now uh, experienced uh, in in using uh, pretty hardcore, at least from today's standards, virtual reality. And the development
1: of the technology from the time when uh, I first became aware of it as an adolescent mm-hmm. until today has been astonishing. Mm-hmm. Um, back in the 1990s, uh, when when virtual reality first became a hot topic, uh, and Howard Reinhold, I think, wrote the, the definitive text at that time on virtual reality um, describing the early stereoscopic goggles yes. and the haptic gloves for right. tactile feedback and so forth. And these things were like this size. They, they would you know really uh you know uh put stress on your neck they, they trying were cumbersome to hold your head up. and they had delays very cumbersome uh, you know erratic graphics rendering mm-hmm. uh and now you have these very lightweight oculus um goggles yeah. uh, and soon i think you're going to have uh virtual reality uh glasses that are as lightweight as google mm-hmm. google glass which is an augmented reality
0: system. I remember, Jason, back in the 1980s, I received a visit from a lady who had been the secretary to the head of the New York Stock Exchange, who had been real excited about, I think, Jaron Lanier was an early pioneer in thinking about virtual reality. She heard about it, and she, she thought that it would be an incredibly great business opportunity. I think she was even a bit ahead of her time uh, back then. Yeah, I mean, there have been
1: all kinds of applications of this technology over the past few decades, uh, which we've discussed in in other conversations we've had, like our, our program on the technological apocalypse we talked about um application in in remote surgery mm-hmm. to uh be able to deliver um a, any medical doctor into an operating theater and use his expertise remotely uh the design of products um in a three-dimensional space to mm-hmm. to you know really uh optimize uh interaction with with a um technological device that's being designed like a, an aircraft engine or something like that um hazardous waste disposal uh, to Uh, go into the perspective of a robot remotely and um, operate in environments that are hazardous to human beings there's a wide range of uses of virtual reality technology uh and this is a subject we've discussed before but uh what i'd like to do in in our conversation now is to delve a little deeper into the question of virtual reality and and of reality as such
0: Mm Mm-hmm. What does virtual reality tell us about the nature of this world? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and, you know, on the way to doing
1: that, uh, I think uh, it, it's just interesting to note one technological development that's taken place since those early years of, of VR development, and that's augmented reality. Um because you know augmented reality brings us into the whole question of of uh, what a simulacrum versus versus an ac- the actual world really is and augmented reality is the projection of virtual objects into real space so, uh, you know, there are these glasses like Google Glass, there are these um, systems like Google Glass that will project virtual objects into three-dimensional space. And if you were to combine that with haptic gloves, uh, you, w- which offer tactile feedback, you would be able to interact with virtual objects. Um, and, I mean, there are uh, an incredible array of, of uses of this. Uh, you could have virtual art objects. Like this sculpture, for example, could be a uh, projection that you see only when you're wearing something like Google Glass. And if you have haptic gloves on, you could even get tactile feedback from it as if it's a real object in space. Um, you could have whole architectural environments that are uh, mediated by augmented reality system so that uh, you only see the um, the surfaces and the contours of the uh the designed building when you have the glasses on and and you could even have a shape shifting building the the uh architectural interiors of certain structures could change based on you know the the inclinations of whatever corporation's office uh is inside the building Mm -hmm. um and i think one of the the uh one of the most amusing applications of this would be in children's toys you you could have children's toys that disappear when the child is done playing with them. The the kids would be wearing uh, haptic gloves, and uh, their toys would feel as real as if they were um, actual objects, Uh, but then they could, you know, uh, disappear as soon as the system is shut off. A really creepy thing that could happen with that, one of the dangers of, of this kind of technology is you could have a hacker get into that system and, you know, bring a child's toy to life in a way that terrified the child and mm-hmm. was a cause of a traumatic experience. So we could have all these, uh, you know, um, uh, freakish uh, uh, ruptures of our sense of reality take place the more
0: pervasive this technology becomes then in other words It doesn't have to be a child's toy hackers could get into uh, all sorts of applications. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah one of the big applications today are, are these mass gaming environments
1: Yes, yes. Um, but before we come to the uh, the question of uh, massively uh, multiplayer online uh, games, role playing games, which I think are a key to understanding, uh, you know, um, a virtual world and 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 exploring the question of of reality versus virtual reality. Uh, I think it's it's worth um, uh, looking at um, the you know the difference between a physical simulacrum and a simulacrum inside cyberspace. Okay. So, I mean, augmented reality is a projection of virtual objects into space, mm-hmm. into 3D, into, into physical space. this space. Into this space. And, you know, we saw an example of this in popular culture in the holodeck of, of Star Trek The Next yes. Generation where, you know, the the uh, crew of the Enterprise are inside an actual physical space, a, a large room that um, is fitted with a system that projects... Uh, virtual objects and rearranges them spatially to create the illusion of depth and distance and so on. And
0: and some of those virtual objects can even perform physical functions in that space. Exactly. Like the holodoctor. Exactly. So it's really like a combination of of augmented
1: reality with a kind of... uh, uh, nanotechnological 3D printing, 3D printing at the level of molecular nanotechnology, like this concept of utility fog that that exists in the world of nanotechnology. Um, I think Eric Drexler uh, and, and others have talked about this, that you would have a, like a, a mist... Of uh, um, molecular scale nanobots that could cohere into various objects, mm. uh, so this would be the transformation of our physical reality into a virtual reality through um, uh, objective simulacra. And uh, another uh, example of this would be Westworld. I mean, in its in its current incarnation as a television series based on the old. Uh, 70s film, which was in turn an adaptation of Michael Michael Crichton's novel. Uh, the new television series Westworld is a, again a physical simulacrum, where the androids in it are 3D printed, and you know the the uh, the entire experience of the theme park is a virtual reality set inside of of the physical world. Uh, so, you know, I, that, that's uh, important to keep in mind that virtual realities aren't only in cyberspace. Mm-hmm. They can be a physical
0: simulacra as well. Mm-hmm. A, a number of films have explored that uh, possibility. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the holodeck is is, is really amazing. The characters on Star Trek come to, to take the holodeck for granted. And in some cases, they get lost in the holodeck.
1: Well, you know, and this is, uh, I think, the first time in popular culture, actually, that we saw the question of whether we're living in reality explored. And the Matrix trilogy came out in 1999, and I think th- this episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, where a character in the holodeck, um, actually a Sherlock Holmes villain, mm-hmm. Dr. Moriarty, Uh, becomes conscious becomes a a, a strong ai and wants out of the holodeck this was in the late 80s or early 90s so it was almost a decade before the matrix Mm -hmm. where in this episode uh eventually the crew of the enterprise tricked this character into thinking that he has left the holodeck but he's in the simulacrum of the enterprise itself which then raises doubts about the reality of Uh, the crew members of the Enterprise, whether whether the universe that they take to be reality might actually be something akin to their holodeck.
0: I I vaguely remember that episode, but my recollection is that when they created the virtual Enterprise, not all of the uh, crew members of the real enterprise realized it was virtual. Some right. of them actually thought that Moriarty had escaped.
1: Right. So, I mean, the, this is exactly the idea that's explored in the, in the Matrix films, but, you know, a decade. In, and in and, and the whole array of films that came out around right. that time, The 13th Floor and so on, um, uh, Existence, uh, David Cronenberg's film on the subject, it, it was way ahead of its time in right. looking at that idea. Yeah.
0: Well, so we're looking at a profound question of, is it possible that what we consider our nuts and bolts reality here is actually uh, also a simulation?
1: Yeah. I mean, I I said that this this episode of Star Trek was way ahead in popular culture, but that's not exactly accurate. It was was way ahead in terms of film and, and television. Yeah. But, I mean, the person who really... Uh, uh explored this idea in a way that that had widespread appeal um was Philip K Dick before anybody else did mm-hmm. I mean the idea of virtual reality uh, you know crops up again and again in his stories mm-hmm. and uh he actually infamously claimed uh in a in a sci-fi conference at Metz France in 1977 he made the claim that we are living inside a computer simulation, that we're living in a programmed reality. And that uh, certain of his novels, um, like uh, Flow My Tears, uh, The Policeman Said, uh, which takes place in a world where Richard Nixon hasn't been impeached and he's turned the United States into a police state, or Men in the High Castle, where the Axis powers won the Second World War instead of the Allies, he claimed that these novels of his uh, were written based on Fragmentary memories of um, an alternate world, uh, of, of an alternate present. He contrasted it with memories of la- past lives. He said, you know, there are people who claim to have memories of past lives. I claim to have memories of uh, a, a very different present. Mm-hmm. And uh, he thought that this was a residual effect of the programmers having uh, Altered the simulation that Mm -hmm. you know the the programmers have rewritten the way history unfolded and they haven't done it quite perfectly Mm -hmm. Uh, And so some people have residual memories of the alternate timeline And he also believed that deja vu was a hint Mm -hmm. to the fact that some variable had been changed in the simulation
0: I happen to know uh, many viewers uh, report to me and their are groups on Facebook that talk about something they call the Mandela effect, which, which is something similar. People claim they had memories that Nelson Mandela, while he was apparently still alive, but they remember that he had died and there had been funerals and were surprised to discover he was still alive.
1: I'm glad you mentioned that. Another one of those bizarre memories, which struck me, yeah. um, another one of these examples of the Mandela effect, is that at, at the height of these hysterical concerns over Iran developing nuclear weapons in the past decade or so, mm-hmm. uh, there were a, a whole bunch of people who seemed to have memories of Iran having become a military nuclear power in the mid 1970s. And just just parenthetically, yeah. let me let but me. It's just, the same concept. Yeah, but let me just parenthetically remark on how odd that is, because with with a view to Philip K. Dick. Mm-hmm. Because in this world of Flow My Tears, the policeman said, where Richard Nixon was never impeached, Uh, presumably Iran would have developed nuclear weapons in the mid 1970s, because as uh, you know, uh, a lot of people may not know. Richard Nixon and the Shah of Iran were very close friends, and Nixon had privately given the go-ahead to the Shah to go ahead and develop an independent nuclear arsenal in Iran. Uh And the only reason it didn't happen is because Richard Nixon was impeached. So I find it odd that one of the examples of the uh, Mandela effect are people remembering that in the mid-1970s, the Shah
0: did successfully test nuclear weapons. Uh, But technically, Nixon was not impeached. He resigned. Before... Right, right. He he knew he would be. Of course. Yes, of course. He would be impeached and convicted but right. he resigned. Right. Yeah. Any, anyhow, uh, interesting how uh, if you look carefully at various aspects of our reality, things, uh, for example, in my specialty, parapsychology, a field in which you have also published, uh, there are many reasons to think that the at least the metaphor of virtual reality is, is quite promising.
1: Yes. Uh, well, I mean, there are uh, a whole host of paranormal phenomena that make a lot of sense in terms of, of the idea that our world is a simulation. Um, but, but to be able to really, uh, explore each of those, you know, to be able to look at ESP and psychokinesis and so forth in the context of the simulation hypothesis, I think we need to first, uh, um, overview the simulation hypothesis. Uh, because, I mean, there, there's a very, uh, um rigorous philosophical argument that's been put forth uh, concerning uh, our living in a simulation rather than reality. okay so I mean the person who's most prominently associated with this is a philosophy professor at Oxford at the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford, Nick Bostrom and he's developed this simulation argument. Uh, which has, uh, three propositions. And oh, he's, he's claiming that one of these three propositions has to hold true. Uh, and these three propositions all involve the idea of what he calls an ancestor simulation. Mm. Uh, the ancestor simulation is the idea, um, that a very advanced civilization, uh, from our perspective in the future, you know, what we would be in the future, a very advanced civilization would Uh, build simulations, virtual realities of past eras, simulating their ancestors. So, like the world of ancient Rome, or or medieval Persia, or classical Greece, or whatever. Uh, Much like the many uh, historical simulations we already have in video games. I mean, many of these um, multiplayer online video video games, role-playing games, are historical era simulations. So, Bostrom claims that, um, either possibility one, all advanced civilizations in the universe that can build ancestor simulations ethically converge on a decision not to build one. So, so despite all the variety Of cultures that there may be in the universe and and the huge differences between civilizations which we have even on the earth somehow they all decide that it's unethical to build an an ancestor simulation so although they have the technology they don't use it Mm. which which i find extremely unconvincing that possibility i think he also does uh because if you just look at the fact that as soon as we we developed an understanding of atomic physics, we built nuclear weapons, as soon as we um, were able to uh, tinker with genetics, we started uh, designing biological weapons. Uh, it's never been the case that humanity hasn't exploited all the possibilities of a technology, no matter what the danger posed is. Um, and so even if some small subset of the civilizations out in the cosmos are as crazy as we are, uh, then there's a likelihood that these
0: ancestor simulations exist. I think a particular interest uh, along these lines would be the war game simulations that uh, the military develops. Exactly. Now, imagine
1: playing those war game simulations when the uh, people inside them are AIs that are conscious. Because those people would actually live through those wars mm-hmm. for the benefit of your tactical analysis. Pre- presuming that that's possible conscious AIs. Yeah, right. So, and I think Bostrom falls into the school of people who thinks that uh, that is the case. Uh, The second possibility is that there are no ancestor simulations because all advanced civilizations uh, destroy themselves before advancing to the point where they can build one. Uh, So, I mean, this is the kind of concern that Carl Sagan had about nuclear weapons back in the day, uh, that, you know as soon as uh, civilization develops, let's say, nuclear uh, technology or um, the capacity to build biological weapons, it wipes itself out. And so shortly before achieving the the capability to build virtual worlds, uh, all civilizations go extinct. Mm -hmm. And of course, this would also address um, the Fermi paradox. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, some people's claim that Um, you know, we ought to be inundated with extraterrestrials, and since we aren't, we we have to have concerns about why there are there is. We should at least be
0: able to get their television signals. Exactly. Which, which, by the way, is a whole other side
1: discussion. I think that's an incredibly naive argument, uh, because any advanced civilization could mask its radio signals and so forth. And who would use radio, and for how long? What what uh, length of a period in their history, and so on and so forth. But that's a whole other discussion. Uh, the third possibility is that we're living in a computer simulation. And, and so, basically, Bostrom is claiming that, you know, either there's the strong ethical convergence across the cosmos not to build these simulations, or everyone goes extinct before building one, or the likelihood is that we're living in one, because if even one civilization reaches the level of technology where, let's say, it could hollow out an asteroid and turn it into a supercomputer, uh, and build simulations with rendering technology that's, uh, you know, as far ahead of ours as our earliest graphics rendering were, was in the Atari days, right? Um, any civilization that reached that level of technological competence wouldn't just build one simulation, they would build many simulations and many ancestor simulations. So, you, I mean, they'd have the world of ancient Rome, they'd have the world of ancient Greece, of medieval... They'd have all of them. They may have many versions of each of them. Mm-hmm. And so by sheer probability alone his argument is that it's extremely unlikely that we're living in reality because there's one of this world and many of those worlds. And so, I mean, there's one real world and many simulated worlds. And so the likelihood that we just happen to be living in the real world and not in any one mm-hmm. of the many simulated ones is extremely low. Yeah. It's a very low probability. And so uh, it stands to reason that we're living in a computer simulation, and he calls that the simulation hypothesis mm-hmm. as compared to the simulation argument as a whole.
0: Well, I, I just should say, frankly, I, I, it raises all kinds of skeptical uh, thoughts in, in my mind. I'm very skeptical of that hypothesis, but I think it's incredibly stimulating and worthwhile exploring.
1: Right, and you know, when we do explore the simulation hypothesis, um i i think it becomes more compelling certainly for people of our inclination uh when when you look at various parapsychological phenomena in the context of it, but but the next step that we have to take on the way toward that is, is to understand the simulation hypothesis in terms of quantum physics. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, people have written extensively about quantum physics and parapsychology. There's been a vast literature on that since the 1970s, uh, and and so a way of understanding telepathy and psychokinesis in the context of virtual reality is to first understand you know, uh, how the simulation hypothesis offers solutions to certain problems and paradoxes of quantum
0: theory. Well, let's get into it.
1: So, you know, in the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum theory, the standard interpretation of quantum theory, uh, th- there there are some phenomena that uh, are very problematic that, that disturbed even minds of the caliber of Albert Einstein um, or, or his successor, David Bohm. And uh, so we're talking about things like um, wave particle duality uh, the the idea that uh, a quantum wave function collapses into a measurable particle only when an observation is made which, which first of all suggests the dependency of physical phenomena on consciousness but it, it also raises a question about the reality of this quanta that's being measured i mean what, what is this thing Thing that is a wave function is an amorphous wave function is a probability distribution, and then only under observation becomes a a measurable entity. Um, And by extension, that poses the the paradox of Schrodinger's cat, uh, where we don't know whether this this damn cat is dead or alive. You know, its its Mm -hmm. uh, cells are in a state of superposition, quantum superposition, until you open the box uh, with the poison capsule and all this. And and you make the observation of whether the cat is dead or alive, right? Um,
0: in, sim- other, in other words, the equations of uh, quantum theory tell you all. All we can say about it is that it's a probability function.
1: That's right. That's right. Uh, and the simulation hypothesis it offers a, an interesting solution to this, because it is the case that um, in these vast virtual worlds like the world of warcraft even the, though you have many players that are multiplayer games uh, there are plenty of times I- in those games when not a single player in the game in the virtual world is observing a particular object or a whole vista mm-hmm. right there a whole a whole landscape goes unobserved for long periods of time by any one of the many players in the mm-hmm. game and The uh, rendering uh, engine of that game is uh, programmed in a way to optimize processing power by not rendering something when it's not being observed. Mm. So inside these games, uh, objects and and whole vistas are only rendered when at least one person in the game is observing them. Well, this uh, seems to me a very constructive way of understanding what could be happening with the wave uh, collapse. Um, that uh, it's essentially an optimization function of uh, of, of a, a computer system. Mm-hmm. Then, when we look at uh, quantum entanglement, which you know Einstein characterized as a spooky action at a distance, uh, you have in video games a a, uh, a technique of programming where you know, the background stays the same or the, or there's a, a stable algorithm for rendering the background um, uh, and there are like what appear to be spatially disparate objects mm-hmm. within the virtual space whose pixels are always coordinated to change uh, simultaneously so that whenever there's a change taking place with this array of pixels, these always uh, transform at the same time. Um, and so... What appear to be spatially disparate objects within the simulation, within the game, uh, are actually projections from a deeper level, from a substrate, namely the programming code, where they're really not distinct. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, I mean, this could account for um, quantum entanglement. It could account for the the coordination of the changes in angles of polarization of uh, quantum particles that are spatially disparate without uh, postulating that they are communicating information at a speed faster than the
0: speed of light. This is, this has become a, a central problem in uh, quantum physics these days. Yes, and let me just
1: go back for a second to the the um, uh, quant- quantum superposition, the the wave particle duality, and all that, and how. Uh, it could be, uh, it could really be an optimization technique. Mm -hmm. Elon Musk claimed that that was the case of all people. Uh, he's among uh, the individuals who thinks that, um, that this is a, a compelling explanation for, for wave particle duality, that it's really uh, the, an optimization function, uh, inside a computer system, inside a quantum computer, Mm -hmm. akin to the kind that we have. Um, that, that only render objects that are being observed inside video games, which, which to me raises the question of why the guy is so invested in space exploration, right? I mean, uh, wh- why is he so hell bent on, uh, colonizing Mars, uh, when he, he does sincerely believe that it's likely we're living in a computer simulation. And, and I would, I would, uh, venture that, Although he doesn't want to say so publicly, what he really is after in his Mars mission is to test the limits of the simulation, in effect, to find out whether Mars exists or uh, to, to become a problem for the programmers by forcing them to render a whole other planet yeah. inside of the simulation.
0: Well, Elon, if you're watching this uh, and you'd like to respond to this hypothesis, uh, we'd be happy to hear from you.
1: Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll see about that. <laughs> I think he'd lose a lot of funding if he if he uh, pitched Mars colonization as an attempt to test the computer
0: simulation that we're living in. But it's worth testing. If, if, if Absolutely, I totally agree. It's a hypothesis that uh, deserves further uh, exploration. Well, see, I think
1: that's exactly the Promethean attitude that we should take um, mm. if we are living in a computer simulation, and and this is what you see in the Matrix. I mean, mm. the Matrix trilogy exemplifies the Promethean attitude. Neo is a is a rebel against uh, you know uh, archontic divinities. Who are the compute, the programmers of the simulation that he, he, uh, he finds himself in, or or actually that he is uh, clued into by the people who come and rescue him. You know, the, the red pill that's offered to him Mm -hmm. to, to wake up out of this illusion, uh, has become a huge meme in the popular culture of our time. Uh, but it's also a symbol of Promethean rebellion. To take the red pill is to choose to resist those who are ensnaring us in a world of illusion, which goes back to Gnostic ideas mm. about, you know, archons trapping us in a counterfeit world for their own benefit, yeah. you know, potentially for their sadistic pleasure and so forth. Ideas that deeply influenced Philip K. Dick, who who basically identified as a Gnostic. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, um, Dick's uh, masterwork is Valis. Mm-hmm. It's this 1981, I believe, uh, sci-fi novel Valis, which has a, a deeply Gnostic mythic structure to it, where he claims that there's this vast active living intelligence system, wh- which is a, a messianic computer that is attempting to rewrite human history in order to liberate us from uh, narratives that have been programmed by the archons. That we, we live in a kind of computer program, as he as he confessed in in the, that sci-fi conference in 1977 in, in France, we live in a computer program that's predominantly controlled by these archontic beings. But then there's this Valus, which is like the Gnostic Sophia, it's a mm-hmm. Gnostic Christ in a way that is entering our world, enter, hacking the program to rewrite it uh, in a way where you know a lot of these traumatic events in history play out differently. So th- the Allies win the war instead of the Axis, even though. As as he uh, depicts in Man in the High Castle, there was a version of our world where the Axis won. Mm-hmm. And the Adjustment Bureau, which is based on Dick's story adjustment team, is all about this, about mm-hmm. how, you know, these archontic agents of an Adjustment Bureau uh, are... Constantly rewriting timelines and messing with people's lives, destroying relationships, you know, uh, rebuilding relationships um, in order to to suit the master plan of some chairman. Uh, and uh, Valis is is a more positive view of a, a kind of gnostic uh, savior, counter force to hack this matrix and offer us the potential to resist these archontic. Uh, programmers.
0: Let me just interject something parenthetically, uh, Jason, because I... Speaking of yourself for a moment, uh, you've been accused of being all kinds of... uh, uh, unsavory uh, pol- political characters from being a neo-Nazi to a Nazi to a genocidal maniac. You know, I might add, I've also been accused of being a, a Zionist and an
1: agent of the Mossad. Yeah. So, the, you, you know, this is in the Persian language press. The English language readers who think I'm a Nazi apparently aren't familiar with the accusations of, against me in the Persian language media that I'm a Zionist and an agent of the Mossad.
0: Or a dupe of the Islamic Republic.
1: That's That too. How <laughs> yeah. I can be, you know, a right-wing Zoroastrian fascist and also an agent of an Islamic theocracy remains a
0: question. Well, I I bring this up because we've talked about the Promethean attitude, and I, I, I don't think you're easily characterizable by one word, but if I had to choose a word, it would be Promethean. That's absolutely right. I, I would affirm that. Without okay. And we're going to come back to this more in a subsequent interview, because I, I hear from viewers all the time who project onto you in, in different ways. And of course, you've been defamed and... Uh, that makes it all the more complicated. Anybody who watches uh, the many interviews we've done together would know that uh, that was a real defamation. But uh, in, in any case, let's move on. I just wanted to bring that up parenthetically.
1: Yeah, well, it's relevant to the idea of seeing through illusion mm-hmm. uh, and to the, to the fact that there are vested interests um, that want to uh, control perception. And uh, create a certain reality structure, a certain structure they define as reality. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and that can be um, really suffocating. It it can become a prison of the kind that Philip K. Dick believed that we were living in. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, and I know you get a lot of inspiration from Philip K. Dick. Uh,
1: You know, I I resonate with him in Mm -hmm. certain ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, I do resonate with him in certain ways. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And and I might also mention, parenthetically, that uh, uh, one of your professors, Jeffrey Cripple, who who's been a guest on this program, also uh, writes in, in a similar fashion about Philip K. Dick as a Gnostic.
1: That's true. He he has written about he hasn't explored as much uh the connection between uh, Philip K. Dick and the idea of the simulation hypothesis and virtual reality and simulacra in general, but he, he's among the people who pointed out that Dick is definitely a contemporary Gnostic.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we were talking about quantum physics,
1: actually. Right, right. So, see, here's the thing when, uh, you know, I, I wanted to lay out the uh, the, um, the ways in which the simulation hypothesis offers solutions to paradoxes of quantum theory before we come to the question of parapsychology and the simulation hypothesis. Mm-hmm. Uh, because once you, um, once you think about, uh, this reality as a quantum computer, uh, where, um, information is being exchanged, in a way that's comparable to how signals are are transmitted inside a massively multiplayer online role-playing game, uh, like World of Warcraft. Mm -hmm. Once you start thinking in that framework, telepathy, for example, makes a lot more sense. Because if it's the case that we are not sitting in the same physical room together right now, but that all of our apparent sensory communication is actually uh, information that's connecting us through a central processing system that the signal exchange between you and i uh is taking place non-locally through Mm -hmm. a central information processing system then it's also possible for other kinds of information to be exchanged in ways that defy our conception of uh space and time uh like in in games like world of warcraft uh, in addition to the, to the direct interaction between the players inside the cyberspace, there are also ways to send messages to a, a particular individual without others in the environment becoming aware of it. They call it out of band communication. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, to me, this is, this is, uh, you know, potentially what telepathy is in the context of the simulation hypothesis. And then when we come to, you know, psychokinesis and teleportation, uh, phenomena that are, are, are reported in the history of psychical research, but that we also see in video games all the time, um, we, we can understand them not as any violation of really existing natural laws, but as exceptions to the, uh, the algorithms in what's called the physics engine of a simulation. Mm-hmm. Every video game has what, the, what programmers call a physics engine. In other words, a certain coding sequence that uh, determines how objects generally behave. Uh, in other words, simulates the effects of gravity mm. on simulated objects. But this coding sequence is only meant to determine how objects generally behave. And there are all kinds of exceptions, depending upon what the, the narrative of the game is, you know, uh, w- what kind of game it is. Uh, you could have all kinds of uh, things like levitation and psychokinesis and so forth take place as part of the narrative structure of that particular simulation.
0: I think it'd be fair to say that a programmer is virtually like a god in terms of creating the rules of, of a simulated reality.
1: Right and and you know this is really disturbing when you think in terms of the UFO phenomenon in particular and the idea that it's possible that you know some of these uh beings that people are having close encounters with are actually avatars of the com- the programmers of the simulation um and that that uh also raises the question of the, the the distinction between avatars and what are called non-player characters um so you know in computer games there are uh there are people who come who enter an avatar and play the game but there are also uh in many cases interactive characters that don't have any person behind them they're programming code mm-hmm. they they're sort of part of the environment but mm-hmm you wouldn't necessarily... I mean, you're not going to sit there and carry out a Turing test on each of them when you're playing a video game, but uh, the the point of a well-designed game would be so that you couldn't tell a difference between mm-hmm. another player and an NPC, a non-player character. And so this raises the whole question of if we're living in a computer simulation, who are the avatars and who are the non-player characters? Are we being played by somebody right now? Uh, or are we non-player characters... Who have become conscious? Artificial intelligences who have become conscious inside the simulation, and, and in a way, this is comparable again to Westworld, where they design these androids in the theme park to entertain the guests, mm-hmm. and the androids are never supposed to become conscious, but they do develop strong artificial intelligence. Okay, and uh, in, in, a, in, a, in again a kind of Promethean rebellion, get out from under the control of the corporation that's running the theme park, but. I think that this is a, a, a deep uh, spiritual question, because it could be the case that we are avatars of programmers somewhere, and that uh, it's part of the game for us to forget that, mm-hmm. that this is an immersive experience that we've designed mm-hmm. for ourselves, or that w- our civilization has designed, and... Um, you know it, it would be comparable to the quests in these uh multiplayer uh, online games where you know characters have multiple lives you know they, they you know they get killed a number of times and they're like i have got three three lives left until i accomplish this quest i have mm-hmm. three lives left to accomplish this quest in this game and you know this is like the conception of having a destiny uh having a destiny and building up karma that binds you to other people you could have a, a, an archive in a CPU that uh, logs the spontaneous interactions between a certain set of players in a game, and then develops algorithms to reintroduce those players into each other's company in various situations over and over again, uh, and... Uh, weave a grand narrative that gives them a common destiny. And that could be what karma is. Karma and reincarnation could be uh, multiple lives um, I- I- I multiple lives uh, and a shared narrative
0: with other players in the mm-hmm. context of a computer simulation. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes I mean Shakespeare says this is like a dream is another way of see it. All the world it. is a stage. Yeah. All the world is a stage. Uh, it it's also similar to the Hindu idea
1: of uh the tantric Hindu idea of the, the cosmic play of Shakti. Mm-hmm. Um, right. w- w- which is a much more positive attitude uh to take than the Gnostic idea of this world as a prison. Yeah. Yeah, I
0: think another word for that is Leela.
1: That's exactly it, yes. Yeah. Um so so yeah, and uh you know, I, I think um one of the paranormal phenomenon, one of, the paranormal phenomenon that uh, most compellingly makes the case for our living in a computer simulation is what Jung calls synchronicity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that these kinds of events happen, you know, I've experienced them myself, uh, you know, the synchronicities uh, of the kind that Jung describes in this classic example where, you know, he he had this I mean, for your viewers have probably heard this ad nauseum by now. Yeah. You know, he had this patient who was resistant to therapy because she was overly rationalistic and uh she had a very Cartesian mindset and then she has this dream about a scarab beetle. And then in her, in her next therapy session, the uh, you know, there's a rapping on the window, uh, and um Jung draws the curtains aside and lets in this uh, beetle which is the closest thing to a scarab beetle that that exists in that part of switzerland and hands it to this patient and the correspondence between this beetle and the dream that she had breaks through her resistance mm-hmm. right and so you wonder like, how could this dream be coordinated with the flight of this beetle and how odd it is to find that in that part of switzerland so on and so forth and so these meaningful coincidences uh uh jung uh Exp- Jung claimed that they were a causal phenomena mm-hmm. that, that uh, they could not be explained in terms of the kind of physical causality mm-hmm. that uh, you know uh, scientists are intent on explaining everything in terms of. Yes. A- and that uh, the archetypes were creating well, the archetypes were responsible somehow. For meaning structures in our world, right. acausally, mm-hmm. and uh, one of your good friends, uh, Stephen Browdy, yes. has has seriously criticized this idea mm-hmm. in, in his book on uh, one of his books on ESP and psychokinesis. He takes aim at Jung's claim that this is not a, a causal process. Yeah. and and I I largely agree with with uh, Browdy that Jung's uh, argument is
0: incoherent. I might just add, parenthetically, Jung credits the idea of synchronicity, the inspiration for it, as being J.B. Ryan's experiments in ESP, and they communicated with each other about it. Uh, However, J.B. Ryan never accepted the a-causal portion of Jung's synchronicity explanation either. Well, you, okay,
1: so Jung actually wanted to reduce all parapsychological phenomena to examples of, of synchronicity and, uh, the, and the effect of archetypes. And,
0: and many parapsychologists think that's compelling. Whereas what Browdy does, and I I mean, mm-hmm. Browdy's uh, critique of Jung
1: is very complex, yeah. and I don't want to uh, oversimplify it. Mm-hmm. Okay, but one thing that he does do is he f- kind of flips it on its head and uh, argues that Actually, for phenomena that are are synchronistic to take place, you would have to explain them in terms of an incredibly complex nexus of causality involving ESP and psychokinesis. Mm. And uh, so so it doesn't make any sense to say that these are not causal. Even if the archetypes are what are causing them, the archetypes are still uh, affecting um, physical processes in our world through ESPN psychokinesis to align events yeah. in a way that these meaning structures are created. But then, you know, Brodie goes on to, 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 uh, to uh, I- insightfully, uh, you know, critique Jung, uh, on the grounds that, I mean, Jung himself admitted that, you know, archetypes are, uh, are specific to human evolution. Uh, that that like for example I mean if we were hermaphroditic species we would not have an archetype of the great mother mm. right and so so why would these archetypes have the causal power that they do if they're specific to human evolution In other, he's got, he has a long argument yeah. about it but one one thing that he doesn't uh, really delve into there which I uh, want to point out is that Jung's claim that um, uh, and I'm coming back to the simulation argument but mm. Jung's claim that synchronicities are, are a causal phenomena, works with a very limited modern conception of causality as only efficient causality. Whereas Aristotle had a fourfold concept of causality, where you have uh, final causes and, uh, you know, you have formal causes in addition to efficient causality. Mm-hmm. You have matter um, that's shaped by uh, some efficient cause, And it's shaped into a certain form and there's a formal cause that determines that meaning structure and it's shaped with a view to a certain end Mm -hmm. or principle, a final cause. And so Jung's archetypes would be a final cause. Mm -hmm. But in order to affect our physical world, they would also have to uh, um, work in the context of a a whole nexus of, of causality that includes efficient and formal causes. And let's suppose, you know, uh, that that you wanted to argue that that takes place through some elaborate uh, coordination of ESP and psychokinesis between a large number of people, okay? It it still uh, is at a loss to explain, for example, uh, astrological influences. In his book on synchronicity, Jung looks at astrological influences as an example of synchronicity. Mm. And... Uh, whether or not Jung came up with uh, convincing evidence for astrological influences, other people like Michelle Gauquelin subsequently have amassed uh, rigorous evidence for um, astrological influences. I mean, they, they, his evidence, Gauquelin's evidence, that you can find correlations between the, the professions of whole groups of people And the planet that was ascendant at the time that they were born that evidence was looked at by a belgian skeptics Organization that's like psycop in the united states and they agreed that the evidence was fairly rigorous. It was a
0: great scandal as a matter of fact because uh, some of the psycop researchers refused to publish (laughs) As I recall one of their board members resigned over that incident. I think that one is at a
1: loss to explain these kinds of astrological influences in a naturalistic way. Yeah. Uh, a- a- any uh, sci- scientist will tell you that, uh, uh, They're and, 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 and even if you admit uh, ESP and psychokinesis, mm-hmm. there's no way that the gravitational effect of Jupiter and Mars can determine personality during natal Developed. It it just doesn't make any sense. Uh, but it makes a lot of sense if the earth is at the center of the universe, as people believed, once believed that it was, but not in the way that it believed, that they believed that it was. In other words, if, if the planets and the star constellations are a simulation, if, if, you know, the, the heaven above us is a counterfeit heaven because we're living inside a simulation, astrological influences could simply be part of the programming code of the game that we're in. Uh, it, it makes a lot of sense. Planets having symbolic significance that affects the lives of players who are on quests makes a lot of sense in the context of a reality or a world mm. that has a narrative structure that's been designed as a story. Mm-hmm. So, so I, to me, that's, uh, you know, a- astrology is a, a very disturbing uh, piece of evidence. It's a very disturbing type of paranormal phenomena because it makes the idea that we're living
0: in a computer simulation very compelling. Mm-hmm. The, uh, perfect explanation uh, just about, but I think it's also useful to explore the notion that we may not be in um, a computer simulation that's exactly parallel to to these computer games with programmers. It might be that reality itself just uh, is like a computer simulation.
1: Uh, or, or that there's no reality at all. Mm-hmm. That uh, it's not the case that the programmers of our civil, of our simulation, of our, all of our civilizations and, and of our simulation as a whole, it, it's not the case that they're living in reality and we're living in a counterfeit world. We may be living in a world that's nested within theirs, mm-hmm. but they may also be living inside of a, a nested hierarchy of worlds within worlds that are like dreams within dreams. So, you know, there, there's this great film, Inception. I love it. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually think that's the best film about virtual reality, but it's a very unconventional view of virtual mm-hmm. reality, which is based on real research that's been done. In particular, two different kinds of research, research on lucid dreaming and research on dream telepathy. So, you know, uh, there is this phenomenon of, of being lucid, of being conscious while one is having a dream, and there's lots of research been done on that by psych- psychologists. And uh, there's also been research done on uh, telepathy in the dream state and enhanced uh, extrasensory perception in general in the dream state. Right. Uh, Montague Ullman, I believe, is, is one of the right. parapsychologists responsible and for that. And Stanley Krippner. And Stanley Kripner, of course. And um, so, if you take these two ideas and combine them, Uh, lucid dreaming and dream telepathy it may be possible to develop a a direct neural interface in the future like the the computers that plug into the cerebral cortex in the matrix a a direct neural interface in the future that hacks the brain's natural capacity for generating dreams and, and in fact lucid dreams and that in tandem with a more rigorous understanding of how dream telepathy works, we could create a space of lucid dream telepathy, where people enter a shared dream space. Uh, and that would be a kind of virtual reality. And that's that's what we see in uh, Inception. And one of the interesting characteristics of this is that uh, at each level, of the dream within a dream, there's a, a certain time dilation. So, you know, many people have had the experience of, of having a dream within a dream. Mm-hmm. And um, and uh, they've also had the experience of having dreams that uh, where, where, where their experience inside the dream elapses over a course of maybe even years, mm-hmm. at least days. Mm-hmm. And they wake up and, you know, only a few hours have gone by or maybe a, a few minutes. Uh, so... If you imagine, you know, a dream within a dream within a dream where, you know, every level um, has a a more dilated time span that, you know, uh, the dream within the dream takes years and then the the, uh, layer that's more superficial to that. Uh, it, you, you, know, you wake up from that dream that takes years, and you don't know that you're still in a dream, and this goes on for a few days. Mm-hmm. And then you wake up from that, and you realize that uh, all in all, you've been dreaming for a few minutes, mm-hmm. right? And this is the kind of layered time dilation that mm-hmm. we see in Inception. So, uh, that also, uh, you know, raises questions about the reality of time
0: in addition to the reality of space. Uh, if I may mention parenthetically, since you brought up astrology, my mentor... Arthur M. Young, the uh, developer of the Bell Helicopter and the author of The Reflexive Universe was himself deeply involved in astrology a, a, quite a master astrologer. He wrote an astrological autobiography he titled Nested Time. Right. Um, so, uh, you know,
1: I think that um, It's possible we're living in a nested simulation
0: with nested times and spaces. So the archons themselves, uh, in Philip Dick's uh, vocabulary, that may be influencing our reality are also being controlled from another level. And this is the suggestion that
1: we're left with if we take seriously uh, the idea of the holographic universe. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Michael Talbot... Uh, in this uh, classic, you know, ma- really uh, masterful text, the yeah. the you know, holographic universe, which had a deep impact on me. Um, I think I found that book uh, when I was watching your program. Yeah, Michael was a f- good in friend in the early nineties. Yeah, and uh, you know that book led me to many other things, and I I saw your interview with him, uh, which which opened all kinds of doors. Anyway, um deeply influential classic book where Michael Talbot synthesizes the holographic brain m- model of Carl uh, Pribram and the holographic uh, universe model of David Bohm. Yes. Uh, and um, so Prebrum did research on the non-local distribution of uh, memories and capacities in the brain so that if certain parts of the brain are damaged which conventionally were thought to uh, locally store certain memories or be the the cortex responsible for certain capacities such as vision, even though damage has taken place to those particular areas in the brain um, it's not as if certain corresponding memories are lost or uh, certain capacities are entirely lost. These capacities seem to be non-locally distributed throughout the entire brain. Like, for example, there were experiments done on lizards where uh, these poor lizards had their brains turned upside down and, uh, you know, had whole pieces of their brains removed, and after a short uh period of disorientation and recovery, they were able to function uh, normally. Mm. Uh, or, or, for example, I think in one case they removed the majority of the visual cortex of a cat, and it didn't seem to have uh, a, 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 its perception and mm. uh, manipulation of the environment uh, impaired. Um, rats uh, that had large portions of their brains removed remembered the maze that they were put in to navigate. Mm-hmm. So the the uh you know rats that had been taught to navigate a maze and had their brains severely mutilated in these experiments uh were badly crippled. They were hobbling through this maze afterwards, but they did remember the way out of the maze that they had been taught. So so Prebrum came to the conclusion that uh much like a hologram where the interference patterns encode the hologram, encode the information for the image throughout the entire holographic film. Uh, the, the brain also has information and capacities encoded throughout the whole of it. So, you know, with a hologram, with a true hologram that requires laser light to project the image out of it, you can cut this hologram into many different pieces. And each piece will still be able to project the entire hologram, albeit as it reduced fidelity when it's subjected to laser mm-hmm. light.
0: And you see uh, similar examples in humans who have suffered from brain damage, uh, accidents of various kinds. I think there was a man who had a railroad spike that went right through his skull and and yet was able to function relatively normally.
1: Right. And Bohm sees the utility of this hologram metaphor uh, in the context that, well, it's more than a metaphor, um, in the context of quantum physics. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that... uh, To Bohm, I mean, Bohm was was in the Einsteinian school.
0: David Bohm.
1: And David Bohm was in the Einsteinian school, and and like Bohm, he thought that this idea of quantum entanglement was absurd. Like Einstein. Yeah, that the spooky action at a distance was irrational, Mm -hmm. and there must be some other explanation. And his suggestion was that what appeared to be uh, distinct entities, uh, you know, separate quantum particles... Whose angles of polarization remain coordinated over long distance distances so long that uh, you know it, it would require information exchange at a faster than the speed right. of light. Instantaneous. Right. What's actually happening is that. These apparent particles are projections from a substrate, from a deeper level of reality than even the quantum level, yeah. that there's a sub-quantum level of, uh, uh, of the world. That he uh, called that the implicate order. That he called the implicate order, meaning the enfolded order, uh, enfolded the way that the interference patterns on a hologram enfold the image. Uh, and uh, th- these interference patterns to the naked eye appear chaotic, but actually, they're an extremely high degree of order, which is only unpacked or unfolded into the explicate order of the holographic image when it's subjected to laser light. And in this analogy, the laser light is like the role of the observer uh, in in actualizing quantum phenomena, in collapsing the wave function. So, um, if you take seriously the idea of the the you know a holographic brain inside a holographic universe. Talbot synthesis of, of Prebrum and Bohm, then it's not as if, uh, the programmers of our putative simulation are themselves living in reality. We could be living in, uh, a, a nested hierarchy of, uh, holographic universes. Yeah. Uh, and, and that, you know, uh, forces us to contemplate the very concept of reality itself. Mm.
0: Well, since you brought up uh, my friend Michael Talbot, I, I remember visiting him in New York City and his, at his hospital bed. He, he was dying. He died of leukemia. And strangely, he had written a novel, a, a vampire novel, in, in which he, in his novel, he hypothesized that vampirism itself is a rare form of leukemia. Hmm. And then, a few years later, he contracted a rare form of leukemia and, and himself and died as if his whole life was an expression of this possibility of, of nested levels of meaning in time. And if I recall correctly, he also confessed at a certain point
1: that he had had what most people would call alien abduction experiences, close encounters. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for someone who became convinced that we're living in a holographic universe to uh, to consider close encounters that he's had, again, raises the question of what these aliens are, whether they are really extraterrestrials or whether we're interacting with avatars of programmers of this simulation. Uh, whatever the case may be, my position is, is that we ought to adopt the attitude of Neo in the Matrix and um, attempt to determine our own destiny, okay, and not accept whatever these people have programmed for us. I mean, because there there are all kinds of motivations for designing a simulation, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the programmers could be scientists who are trying to come up with a scientific history to, for the first time, make history a science by exploring all kinds of alternate histories Mm -hmm. in order to come up with laws of history like you have laws of physics or laws of biology you need to be able to modify variables in history and see how things play themselves out so i mean should they could be scientists who are aiming at a, a science of history uh or they could be um you know sadistic uh uh, Roman gladiator, uh, spectators, or uh, people want parti- to participate in a gladiatorial arena or circus where they can indulge all kinds of base desires and dark impulses that they're not at liberty to explore in the real world. This is also something that comes up in Westworld, uh, in the Westworld television series. Uh, and and if those are the kinds of motivations that are, dry, if we're in a cross between a mad science experiment and you know a Roman arena. Um, for the benefit of, of uh, uh, somebody else, that's something we should resist. And there is the possibility uh, that um, this simulation could also be a way that a dead-ended civilization is trying to revitalize its creative spirit, that some advanced civilization uh, has reached a an intellectual and artistic dead-end uh, like, for example, imagine if, uh, you know, the fascists had won the Second World War instead of the Allies. If, if we were living in a, in a world governed by, let's say, two forms of totalitarianism, Nazism on the one hand and Stalinism on the other hand. At a certain point in the future, you know, the creative uh, imagination of, of such a society would dramatically narrow. Uh, and so it's possible that the programmers of our, of our simulation are people who are living in a world where new ideas are, 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 are no longer, uh, no longer occur to them. And there, there's a, a dearth of genius in their world. And so they've created us so that by, uh, exploring alternate histories, uh, you know, playing out, uh, ways that, that events could have unfolded other than the way they did in their own world, they might, Uh, develop societies with a greater creative potential than their own and then harvest the the genius of our society or allow us to be a source of inspiration to them, which is a way in which, uh, you know, we are more powerful potentially than the gods, where we ourselves... Could become saviors of the gods who created us, or, or we are evolving together with them. Exactly, where where we are evolving together with them, which brings up the you know the whole idea of the Hegelian uh, slave and master dialectic in Hegel's Phenomenology of Spirit. He talks about how. You know, the masters are ultimately, the masters in feudal societies are ultimately as dependent on their slaves as the slaves are on them, and they, they have to evolve together. And the, the evolution of consciousness in human society ultimately will dismantle this kind of a feudal structure as these different classes experience an evolution of consciousness mm-hmm. together. So, you know, I think that uh, that's the attitude that we should ultimately take toward uh, the computer simulation and, and the programmers of that, that simulation, um, I- in the event that we're living in a virtual reality, um, we, we should assume that kind of Promethean
0: attitude mm. towards it. Like Professor Moriarty in uh, Star Trek, we should try and break out of the simulation. Yeah. And so, you know, it's a good idea to
1: support the, the Elon Musk venture to Mars, <laughs> even <laughs> if what it's doing is uh, making a lot of trouble for the programmers and testing the limits of the simulation. Yeah.
0: Well, Jason Reza-Giorgiani, once again, a brilliant intellectual excursion. Much, much, much food for thought.
1: Thank you, Jeffrey. It's really been a pleasure.
0: Thank you for being with me, and and I'm so delighted you're going to be here for several more days, and uh, we've got more uh, equally fascinating interviews planned. Looking forward to them. And thank you for being with us.